As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everyone. Welcome to the Big Football Show, a podcast by The Athletic about Big Ten football. And this is Scott Dockerman. I mostly write about Iowa. Today I'm joined by The Athletic's uh, Mitch Sherman, who covers Nebraska. And Mitch, you've had one heck of a wild week. And before we get into that, we probably should run down the, the latest CFP rankings and what happened last night. Uh, Ohio State slid into the top four with uh, Michigan State's loss. They're now at Seven, one spot behind Michigan, who it beat, which is number six. And then you have a trio of Big Ten West teams at 18 through 20, Wisconsin, Purdue, and, and Iowa. So what is uh, what was kind of your thoughts from what you saw the unveil last night? Yeah, this has been so far from my world this week, Scott. But, but uh, actually, um, it's good to talk about something else. Um, I saw Ohio State last weekend. Nine point win at Nebraska for the Buckeyes. Uh, Nebraska, as it has done this year, played well against the top 10 team. I don't hold that against the Buckeyes because the Huskers did the same thing against Oklahoma and Michigan and Michigan State. So I, I liked what I saw from Ohio State. Um, clearly, an explosive offense. Um, they're playing better on defense than what I saw from Ohio State early in the year. I think when they're firing on all cylinders, clearly they are a top four team, but there have been instances this year where, where that, that has not happened. The weird thing for the Big Ten, obviously, is in that placement of Michigan ahead of Michigan State. And I know some of our writers were up in arms about that last night. Um, Michigan State did st- they did beat Michigan. We we um, we we checked and it did happen. So that's a strange one. What did Iowa AD Gary Barta have to say about that? <laughs> I was at a basketball game. He didn't have much time on TV, and I know he was thrilled about that because after last week, I don't know that I've seen anybody more scorched than Gary Barta. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I think he was taken aback by a lot of the, the vitriol in his direction uh, and almost like, hey, you know, and I just had a side conversation with him at Northwestern, and I think it's more like, hey, there's several weeks left of football. Everything can get sorted out here, but um, – you know, here's two lines, and I'm going to probably take the contrarian line on this just to be contrary in some ways. Yes, Michigan State beat Michigan in a thriller at 
East Lansing, uh, 37-33 a couple weeks ago. Then it got beat by 11 points at unranked Purdue. And so if you're gauging those two teams, one lost to a top 10 team on the road by four points. The other team <laughs> lost on the road at an unranked team by 11 points and was clearly dominated. So who's got the, the, the head-to-head? Sure, it's Michigan State. But are we really not going to look at the, the quality <laughs> of defeat and, and, I'm, and I'll circle back to this Ohio State one, too, because that's going to be a debate. And I think it, it's going to meet here. And there's going to be a confluence at some point. When you look at Ohio State, yes, it lost head-to-head with Oregon and it remains behind Oregon. But are we really going to ignore the fact that Oregon lost to a 3-6 and six Stanford team? I mean, Ohio State's quality loss is it lost to a top-five team. Yeah. Oregon lost to a 3-6 and six team that's probably not going to go to a bowl game. So – I, I think in some ways we don't need to be a prisoner of head to head, even though that's the ultimate gauge in some ways, but it's almost like, yeah, but does that always give you that plus one? Should it always give you that plus one when you, when you look at, you know, okay, we can go out and lose to a sub 500 team that's not going to a bowl game, but we're still better than they are. I, I it, guess I, I look at it a couple different ways. It just sounds funny when they've both got the one loss. And you say Michigan lost to a top 10 team on the road. Well, who was that top 10 team that Michigan lost to on the road? Oh, it was Michigan State. (laughs) Yeah, I look, it's not going to matter anyway. If both of these teams live out their dreams and beat Ohio State and finish with one loss, Michigan State's going to the Big Ten championship game because they've got the the head-to-head. So if they win the Big Ten championship, they're going to be ranked ahead of Michigan, and they're going to get in the playoff as a 12-1 and team. So it's fun to sit here on November 10th or November 9th and lose your mind about this head-to-head conversation. But if Michigan State takes care of business, it's going to be just fine. That, and that's the thing. I mean, maybe it's just my age or whatever. My outrage meter the second week of November is very small. I don't really care. I, I mean, I look at Cincinnati last week and being sixth. And yes, we had colleagues losing their minds over this. And I, and I was like, well, I see a path to the playoff. I mean, they went out, they, you know, other team, this isn't an end all. It's, it's going to happen. I mean, teams are going to lose. Michigan State lost to Purdue. Ohio State, Michigan State, and Ohio State, Michigan still have to play. Georgia and Alabama still have to play. Oklahoma a blue blood is eight and it's undefeated and it's behind all these teams. So I just, I look at this as very fascinating, but not in the way of, I got to go out and, you know, drag my pitchfork out of the garage today. (laughs) Yeah. Oklahoma that, and we don't, we don't need to have a podcast about Oklahoma, but behind these one loss teams, the Sooners sit with their undefeated record. But then again, I think, much like we said with Michigan State, I think Oklahoma is going to be just fine if the Sooners take care of business and go 13-0. and They'll make it into the top four. They haven't been very impressive. But, you know, and it's, it's weird just in general, not going to be specific, but in general, which teams people gravitate and push for or other teams they choose to ignore. I mean, let's, let's look back last week a little bit. And it's, it's almost like, the high everybody's rooting for the high group of five team, but they're shitting all over the the lower level power five team. Look at Wake Forest. Where yeah. have they ever been? Nowhere. 
What a great story that is. They didn't get any love. Now it lost. So, okay, we move on. But <laughs> I'm kind of like, what a great story that would be. Why is that story less important or less relevant than what Cincinnati's doing? So, I, I mean, I guess I'm getting outrageous here, but by not being outraged. But I, I think I think it's fascinating, especially in a 14 tournament coming up. And you've seen all, you've seen half the top eight. I have. <laughs> How would you stack them if, if you were on the committee? Those well, that was, inform- that was information I just learned from you right there. Nebraska is the first team eliminated from bowl contention in the Big Ten. So that's, uh, there's another, fu- another fun stat for Nebraska fans. I would go, my rankings, I would say Ohio State, Oklahoma, Michigan, Michigan State. So I too have Michigan ahead of Michigan State. When I look at these four teams, and I know <laughs> I'm, uh, you, you might as well just shoot me right now because of, of what I just said. But no, I, 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 now I sympathize for the committee because I think if I was ranking those four teams by themselves, I'd put the Sooners ahead of the two Michigan schools because of the undefeated record mm-hmm. and what their ceiling is with Caleb Williams. I think he can bring them to a place that is much better than what we saw early in the year when the Sooners struggled against all kinds of teams, including Nebraska. I don't know if this makes for a good podcast, but I completely agree with you. Out of those four, I I am in absolute 100% agreement. I look at Michigan State, and I think it's a very good team. I look at it as a a citrus bully type of team. I think they're going to probably lose at least once and maybe twice. Uh, you got Ohio State that I think is clearly better than they are. And I think Penn State is capable of, of doing some damage as well. Uh, still a great story, a great year. I think, uh, you know, Mel Tucker deserves coach of the year at this point, although Jeff Brom is getting in that category too. Uh, but I, I think Oklahoma has a higher ceiling than Michigan does. Um, I think Michigan, with its reliance upon the running game, it gets to a, a shootout. I'm not sure it can win that game. And, and really, it's lost its – I guess the only good team it's played so far, so which is typical Michigan, and now they'll get into their good games and, and lose ball. Uh, so I, I'm in total agreement with you on this. And then the Big Ten West is also fascinating because we have a four-way tie at top uh, at the top. Wow! And and uh, you know we've already had a few of those games, and <laughs> Iowa's zero and two with its fellow co-leaders uh, Purdue and Wisconsin. Wisconsin also bludgeoned. Purdue. So uh, the Badgers are kind of back to where they've always been. And then they're, they're leading their 18th, Purdue's 19th, Iowa 20th. But there are some potential speed bumps, I think, for any of those teams. And then this week we got the fight for Floyd in Iowa City between Minnesota and Iowa. And the Gophers haven't won here since 99. So that they'll have an uphill climb against Iowa and history. How about Paul Christ for Big Ten Coach of the Year if the Badgers win went out from here uh, and make it to, to Indy? I mean, as bad as Wisconsin looked just a few weeks ago, to be playing as well as it appears to be now, I think that that deserves some real recognition. And I know it's not typical to give Big Ten Coach of the Year or any Coach of the Year to um, a school that has a dip in the middle of the season, but isn't that as much of an indication of coaching and what coaching should be than a team that just cruises through the year on its talent or you know you didn't you, you never experienced the kind of speed bumps that Wisconsin has this year. I'm really impressed to see 
the way that Wisconsin has dug itself out of that hole. Because as I watched the Badgers against Notre Dame, and then getting back into Big Ten play after that, what a mess that was! It looked like it looked like you know you were headed for the kind of year that Nebraska's now experiencing. Maybe not three and seven, but by Wisconsin standards, that kind of a year. And now to be the the odds-on favorite to make it to the championship game in this jumbled division is is impressive. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing Wisconsin next week. It's not going to be pretty for Nebraska, but I'm looking forward to seeing what it's like to take a look at a team that has rebuilt itself on the run in the middle of a season. I have not seen that a lot in my coverings of Nebraska. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, I think in some ways going to the bare bones on offense has been Wisconsin's best part because it struggled so mightily on offense. And uh, you'd look at the Notre Dame game. I mean, they were the Badgers were winning going into the fourth quarter, and then they threw two picks and then got bounced pretty heavily and then backed that up with just a, an absolutely disgusting effort against the Wolverines. And I thought, okay, this team's ready for the, the boneyard. I mean, like not like Nebraska's boneyard, but like six and six, seven and five, Bill. You know, Nebraska has it has its own boneyard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I was being in the fun part, but you know, but uh, you know, so I, I really, <laughs> I know what you meant. <laughs> so, but now looking at them, and and I watched them up close. That defense is legitimate. It is a terrific defense. I would say outside of Georgia, it's the best in the country. It's going to shut down. Uh, let's see. The, you know, the, this week they've got Northwestern. That's not going to be pretty. They're, Nebraska, I can't imagine that being very competitive. Now, Minnesota might be the one that gives it the hardest time. I mean, huge rivalry game in the Twin Cities. But, you know, the, they're, still, <laughs> they're still the senior partner of that, of that friendship there. So I, I guess i got to go with Wisconsin winning out. I think Iowa has a chance to win out, but it's it might be a little more difficult now that they have a quarterback change. So, uh, but I think that's the right call for the Hawkeyes. Uh, Alex Padilla is now the quarterback. He had a pretty good debut the other day, eighteen of twenty-eight, was targeting wide receivers down the field, which Petrus didn't do as much. And uh, Petrus is hurt; he hurt his shoulder at Wisconsin. And uh, so he's now on prescribed rest, but I use air quotes for that. Uh, I think this is a matter of we're going to let Alex Padilla do whatever he can do, and then we'll make a decision if we have to make a change. So uh, it's, it's now Alex Padilla's team, and he does a lot of different things that Spencer Petras couldn't do very well. I would like to set an over-under on the points that Nebraska is going to score in its final two games against Wisconsin and Iowa, considering it's not likely to be uh, warm and offensive friendly for either of those games. And 80% of the Nebraska coaching staff on the offensive side is shopping at Costco at noon. So I, <laughs> uh, yeah. you got Adrian Martinez. You may have some opt-outs. It looks like Nebraska's losing Jojo Doman on the defensive side um, for these final two games. Like he's had, He's had some uh, some medical reason to to hang it up, and and we've seen the last of him, and and which is unfortunate because he's had, I think, close to an All Big Ten kind of year at outside linebacker. But I'm talking on the offensive side without without coaches, most of their coaches, and 
with these defenses that I, that Nebraska is about to stack up against in Iowa and Wisconsin. I think if the Huskers get 27 points in these last two games, I'd be surprised. I might set the over-under at like 24 and a half. Yeah, I agree. I, I'd be surprised if we got more than 10 at, at Madison and maybe between 10 and 17, depending on why, against Iowa. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Let's get into this. There's surprising news, and the Scott Frost announcement, either way, was not surprising to me. Uh, and you certainly yeah. can, we'll talk into that. But what did surprise me is firing four coaches immediately in the in not at the middle of the season, but at near the end, and you still have two more games left. I, I've never seen this kind of bloodletting at this point in this stage of the season. And I, I think we're everybody on the outside. Going, How are you doing this? Why are you doing this? What is the players have got to be just up in arms thinking about it. And then you look at, um, how are you going to go against I mean, Wisconsin's not the team you want to go against when you don't have your coaches. I mean, it just makes no sense. Yeah, they'll have coaches in place. You're going to have Ron Brown in charge of the running backs, and he has experience doing that. And then Nebraska's putting analysts and GAs and and uh, other staffers in charge of the offensive line, the wide receivers, the the quarterbacks. It's it's not it's it's patchwork, obviously. And yes, the players are upset. Uh, Scott Frost said today on Wednesday, in, in his his lone media availability of this bye week that that they're hurting. He said he's hurting. I believe him that he's hurting. I don't think that he got any joy from firing four of his coaches. Three of these guys have coached with him since 2016 when he took the job as head coach at UCF. Mario Verduzco, who met Scott Frost at Northern Iowa back in 2007. And then Greg Austin and Ryan Held, who are ex-Nebraska players. Ryan Held played with Scott Frost in the mid-90s. Um, and then you have Matt Lubick, who hooked up with Scott Frost in 2013 at Oregon when Frost took over as the OC and, and Lubick came in to take Frost's old position as receivers coach. So there's a ton of history with Frost and all four of these coaches who've been let go. It was just such a bizarre Monday. Um, I was expecting something to happen Monday, and even if nothing had happened as far as an announcement from Nebraska, then to me that qualified as something because Nebraska was getting into this bye week. It's an important time to try to find a way to do something with this recruiting class that's sitting in the 70s in the country and dead last in the Big Ten. I don't care about the size of the group. It's there's there's not a player in there who's in the top 500 nationally according to the 247 composite. So they they have work to do. Even if you're going to sign a small number of players, you need to strive to sign a small number of 
very good players. And that's not where Nebraska's at. So it has work to do on the recruiting side and sending coaches out into high schools this week when there was so much uncertainty about the program, that wasn't going to work. That, that was going to be a bad situation. So if Nebraska had planned as it did to retain Scott Frost for the 22 season, it needed to step up and say something this week. And to me, if it had not said something Monday, maybe Tuesday at the latest, that meant that there were not plans at this point to retain Scott Frost, which was also Mm-hmm. a big development. If we went into Iowa week and we had not gotten any word, and I don't think we would have after this week, then you, you would likely have been looking at a, a coaching change after Black Friday. So the big news, of course, Monday, Scott Frost is back for 2022. He's taking a $1 million pay cut down to $4 million, And yes, he can live in Lincoln on $4 million a year. <laughs> and his buyout, which was at $20 million here in in November and December of this year, fifteen million next year is now seven and a half million in twenty twenty two. So his buyouts cut in half. He's taken a million dollar pay cut. Um, this is a university friendly renegotiation. Obviously, that Trev Alberts worked with Scott Frost, and it was that or go. There wasn't a you know, that that was that was it. He could have taken the offer or been looking for a job. And, you know, Scott, Scott even said it was an easy decision. Those were his words today. It was an easy decision for him because he wants to be the coach at Nebraska. And he put his money where his mouth is in, in wanting to be the coach at Nebraska. $20 million to go away at the end of November or even right now and have an interim coach for the last two games is more money than he'll make to coach the team next year if that's his last year and likely even through 2023. We don't know what the buyout is, the full – um, document has not been released. We just know the 2022 figures, but I don't imagine that he's going to make $20 million these next two years, even with the buyout where it would be after 23. So he's putting his money where his mouth is. He wants to coach this team. He could make more money to walk away, but um, but he's coming back at the end of the day. And he's got an offensive coordinator and three other assistants to hire. Okay. Look, here's some things. And I think you can we can see it, or at least I can see it multiple directions. One is I totally get the recruiting angle of letting these guys go because this is a heavy week where you're all your assistants or most of them are going to hit the road, get in high schools, go watch games, or just, you know, really try to scour the the landscape for not only 2022, which is kind of everybody's just scrambling for, but also 2023 and beyond, which is really important right now. I totally get that aspect of it, but what I guess I don't understand, and this this one's the hard thing, is you still got a season, and you still got current players who matter to, you know, they're human beings or the coaches that they're. Why couldn't have there have been a, a conversation to say we're going to make a change at the end of the season, um, just finish out the year once we get done with the Iowa game, and then you're gone. I mean, I think most coaches in this profession understand what kind of profession it is. They're not going to, you know, go out middle fingers blazing that they'll just do that and, and move on. So I, I guess yeah. I, I feel for the players then to say, man, my position coach, all oh, on offense, off an offense, it's actually statistically very good. <laughs> you know, there's a disconnect between results. And, but I mean, you look at, you know, they're fourth in the big 10 in scoring their second in total offense. I mean, they're in just about every category they're producing. Now they're not producing wins, of course. And there's some, 
within the statistics, they're not telling you everything, but, but legitimately I'm looking at it going, yeah, you're closer to it. Was this necessary? First of all, and do you think that, that this was the right move to rip the bandaid off now and pull blood off the, the arm when you're doing it? Okay. A couple things. So with the offense and the numbers, they're obviously misleading because Nebraska is not an efficient offense. It's not a clutch offense. That's probably the big thing. When the Huskers have got in position this year to win games, and they've had opportunities to win just about all the games they've lost. I mean, the Ohio State game, a nine-point deficit, that was the the largest deficit that Nebraska, the largest margin of defeat that Nebraska's had this year. And in that Ohio State game, it was 23-17. to 17. Nebraska had the ball with 6-11 left on the clock, and Adrian Martinez started that drive with a 21-yard run to get them out in in good field position. So you're feeling pretty good if you're Nebraska. Down six points with the ball under six minutes left, first down beyond the 30-yard line. It's it's looking like, hey, maybe this is going to be the day. That drive ends with three errant passes and a punt, then an Ohio State uh, fumble that the Buckeyes recovered and and kicked a field goal to to cinch it. So um, that that's been the story for the Nebraska offense this year. That's a microcosm of the way things went against Illinois, against Oklahoma, um, to a certain degree against Michigan State. That that, that was more special teams driven. Um, against Michigan, the same thing. Minnesota, the same thing in the second half. Purdue was actually the one that was probably the the most out of reach. Uh, in the fourth quarter. That's the only game this year where Nebraska didn't have the ball uh, with the shot to win a, a, an opportunity to go ahead in the final minutes. Um, so it's not been a good situation offensively. And that's where that's where the the um, the frustration, the consternation comes in on the part of Scott Frost and Trev Alberts to make changes on this offensive side. It's not that they're scoring 28.6 points a game or averaging more than six and a half yards per play, which is third in the Big Ten. It's these clutch moments. It's the efficiency. It's it's um, it's hurting the defense. The special teams in the offense through the way that they've played in important moments this year have actually hurt the Nebraska defense, which statistically is the top 25 defense. But if it had any help, from the offense and special teams, it might be a top 10 to 15 defense in the country. Okay, so that covers what's happening on offense and why Nebraska felt the need, and I think justifiably, to have a shakeup at some point here with its offensive coaching staff. That's not to say that it should have done what it did and fire these guys on November 8th with two games left on the schedule. Because as you said, that's terrible for the players. And this thing's about the players. It's not about the coaches. It's about the players. This is their team. It's their experience. It's their university. They're the ones who the the, the fans come to see and tune in on TV to watch. And they're the ones who are getting who you know who are getting crapped on in this situation on the offensive side these guys who have poured their heart and soul into playing for these coaches and now they're gone with two trophy games left on the schedule and I don't care if they're 3 and 7 these are still important there's all kinds of players who made decisions to play through injuries Adrian Martinez has played through a played with a broken jaw since the end of September 
as Scott Frost felt the need to tell everyone on Saturday after the Ohio State game. And now he doesn't have his coach, the guy who recruited him, the guy who called him on the night that UCF won the American Athletic Conference Championship and Scott Frost accepted the job at Nebraska. Mario Verduzco called Adrian Martinez and said, come play for us, decommit from Tennessee, come do this, come be with us. And now perhaps two games from the end of, of Adrian's career, he's got a year left, but I don't think he's coming back. Yeah. Mario's gone. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, look at LSU. They're playing out the string with their coaches. Other schools right now have interim coaches in place who know darn well, they're probably not going to be coaching at those schools next year. And, and they're doing it. They're, they're, they're doing their jobs. And Scott Frost did not allow these guys to do their jobs. I think he still could have begun the search for an offensive coordinator and for offensive assistant coaches without kicking these guys out of the office. It speaks to what has been, Scott, a tense situation within the Nebraska coaching offices since that Minnesota game a few weeks ago. When Nebraska went to Minnesota before its bye and played poorly on offense with a quarterback, again, in Martinez, who had not only a broken jaw but a high ankle sprain and went through that game hobbled, the offense, not surprisingly, looked bad. And there was a lot of tension. There was discord among the assistant coaches and with the head coach. So I think that ultimately led to this kind of a harsh moment on Monday where not only did they get word they wouldn't be back in 2022, they were told to pack up their offices and leave right then. It's crazy. I mean, you know, looking at it from the outside, you just don't see this type of thing. Because as you said, you know, at LSU, there are a lot of coaching staffs right now in the NFL, in college football that know know the score. They know what's going to happen. And so just finish out the string. And, and coaches are like anybody. Just let me finish out the season. You know, even sports writers, sometimes you feel that way. Just let me finish out the season before things happen. And, and, uh, and I do think that this is where there's a disconnect sometimes between um, some media, not all, and fans, certainly, with because some the fans will say, yeah, good, we need to get rid of those guys. The players are the ones that are going, I've, I was recruited by this guy, he was in my living room, I've talked to him every single day, he's my friend, he's my confidant, he's also my coach, he's my critic, he's been there for me throughout my whole career, and now he's gone. And that's when, you know, the players will sit there and go, well, who should we play for then? Our head coach? Well, he's he's kicking these guys to the curb before the end of the season. You know, the fans, well, I don't know that most of them don't play for the fans, even if they say they do. So I, I just I wonder what the mindset will be. And the other part is, if I could say you get your choice uh, of any team to play in the Big Ten or uh, what I should say, rank them in order of who you'd want to play shorthanded with coaches and or players. Wisconsin would be last. And the reason why is because <laughs> of that defense and because they play like they, they hit like sledgehammers. And if you're not into it, you will get crushed like a baby seal. I mean, it is just going to be disgusting. So that's the last place I want to play. Even Ohio State will, will boat race you. Other teams will play. And you never know. Iowa, who knows? It depends on the day. But Wisconsin's just one of those where you're, it's like you're trapped under a Zamboni if you don't play the right way. And I just, I fear for what may end up happening in Madison in a week and a half. 
absolutely no one is going to be surprised if the Nebraska offense looks completely inept in Madison in two weeks. And that's, and that's not, that's not an indictment against the players out there on offense. Who are they going to go to, to make adjustments when Ohio state, or I'm sorry, when Wisconsin comes out showing a certain look or, or there's something that needs to be done within the game, how is their game plan going to be up to par when the coaches who are formulating it are, are, are gone. You got 80% of those guys, the assistant coaches are gone. They've been there for, for four years and, and they're gone. Or in the case of Matt Lubick, two years, they know they're, they're the ones who know the scheme, who know the offense, who know the lingo, who work with these players every day in practice. That matters when you're, especially as you said, Scott, when you're playing Wisconsin. So I, you know, Nebraska's hope is, is that it can make it a, an ugly game and Nebraska's defense is, is, is capable of, of playing uh, well against Wisconsin. Those guys are going to have to come out inspired, but they're not going to get I – just, I just can't see how they're going to get the kind of help that they need from the offensive side of the ball. And in the end, I think it's going to turn ugly, which is, which is just, just a, sad, a sad way for it to end. This is a team, despite its record at 3-7, and seven, that has showed a lot of heart that has had a lot of fight, that played Oklahoma to seven points, that played Ohio State to nine points, that played Michigan and Michigan State to three points and took the Wolverines, um, you know, down, um, took, I'm sorry, took the Spartans to overtime on the road. Um, and, and I just don't think it's going to end like that with, with, with these two games. I, I, had, I had said, I think I told you, that I thought Nebraska was going to get this empty, kind of hollow-feeling win against Iowa, and that would be the, the uh, you know, Oh, just just the considering the path of Nebraska football over the past decade, that would be fitting for Nebraska to finally beat Iowa for the first time since 2014 and to have it just not feel like it should. Well, I, I'm, I'm gone with that. That's not going to happen on Black Friday as I see it now, because you're talking about another good defense that Nebraska faces in the finale. I mean, they're staring three and nine right in the face at this point because of, in large part, because of what happened on Monday with the coaching staff. What's really sad is, and being as objective as I can with with Nebraska is, I do see the elements of of an upper half Big Ten defense, which means you're you're an upper quarter defense in the country. And Jojo Doman, like I said, I think he might be the most underrated defensive player in the Big Ten. He is, he's fantastic. And, and talking inside conversations with, with Iowa coaches, you know, they're like, he's, he's as good of an outside linebacker as we will play all year. And yet then you, uh, you look at the offense and at times it's looked okay. I mean, Adrian Martinez has had his moments from time to time and also not so, but you have receivers that have a lot of athletic ability with Samari Toure and, and, uh, you know, Betts and, uh, Omar Manning. Yeah, Omar Manning. And, and so there's just, but then you look at how it's kind of got to this point and you can't help but look at the attrition and every year, good players are leaving the system. I mean, what was it last year? I want to say that Luke McCaffrey was, the future, and then he left right after the season. I mean, it's just yes. there's that, that's been a really a big issue to me in watching it from afar. Yeah, um, attrition. Nebraska's lost 41 scholarship players from its 2017 to 2020 recruiting classes. 41 scholarship players, 30, 33 who played 100 snaps or less, 
in their time at Nebraska, 12 of those players were receivers. So, you, you, you know, you see the pattern and the pattern I would expect to continue this year. Now we'll see. We'll see who Nebraska finds as an offensive coordinator. We'll see who they find to fill the other spots on the offensive side. And some of this stuff is is going to is going to look a lot different on December 10th than it does right here on November 10th, uh, I would assume. And you know, maybe there will be a tendency to be a lot less alarmist about the 2022 roster a month from now than there is today, but I I I'd have real concerns if I'm the coach, the head coach and there, there is one offensive assistant left, Sean Becton, who's a great coach and a, and, a, and a great recruiter and a great developer of talent and absolutely did not deserve to be let go with those other guys. Not that they all deserve to be let go, but he, he, he 100% deserves to keep his job. Now, he, he, he gets tasked. His job right now, yeah, you want to recruit kids who can come in and help your program from the outside. His job is to recruit the guys who are in the program, the guys that you mentioned, like Xavier Betts, like Thomas Fedoni, the top-rated tight end in the country a year ago out of Council Bluffs, Iowa, who signed with Nebraska, had a knee injury in the spring, and is healthy now, but has not played in this season. You can't lose him after one year. You can't lose... You know, I'm going to get down in the weeds here in the depth chart, but guys like Elante Brown and Will Nixon, and you mentioned Oliver Martin, who, who has been a starter this year, and Manning. Manning's got a year left. He's an NFL-caliber wide receiver. He can't transfer. He's already transferred twice in his career. He's got one year left to play in college football. Now, I think the assumption is he's going to go try the NFL. He's made 25 catches this year. You can see huge amount of potential in that guy, but if you can sell him, on the possibility that he can come back and play in a new system, perhaps with a new quarterback, certainly with a new coordinator who's going to feature him, could be an all-Big Ten guy, could be a high draft pick, much higher a year from now than he could he could today. But I just I don't know if Nebraska has the organization, has the the, the structure uh, right now to be able to pull something off as 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 daunting as that seems to to actually recruit the players back to its own roster that it needs to have an effect, an effective offense and an effective passing game uh, for this, this new coaching staff next year. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's bright and sunny, <laughs> uh, but it's real and it needs to be real. We can't, sometimes there's too much sunshine out there um, in the off season. And then even during the season that, you know, you need, there needs to be some revealing going on. You know, there, there's also two veins I look at when it comes to who Scott can replace um, those assistants with. S- some people may say, look, how can he go get anybody? Who would want to go there with a lame duck coach? Then there's the flip side that says, hey, it's a Big Ten job. And if you save this guy's job, he's going to be loyal forever. And you'll be able to enhance your own marketability as an assistant coach and stuff. So, um, you know, and then you have and, and we know the wheel keeps spinning. What's to say that maybe um, an offensive couple of offensive coaches at LSU might not want to make the trek north and bring a quarterback named Miles Brennan with them? And voila, you've got a makeshift, you got an offense that's like, uh, you know, goes into a, a new motion like uh, Michigan State. So it's like you've been reading Twitter, Scott. <laughs> I almost need to, I need to go on the message boards a little while, at least <laughs> the Nebraska side. 
<laughs> yeah, there are a couple. There are a couple of assistants at LSU with connections to Nebraska. Uh, Jake Peets, the the Tigers' offensive coordinator, uh, played at Nebraska as a long snapper, and uh, and Mickey Joseph, the the assistant head coach and receivers coach, who's a great recruiter out of New Orleans, was a quarterback for Nebraska in the '80s and was a candidate two years ago to to uh, to get that offensive coordinator job that that Matt Lubick um, ultimately accepted. So. Um, they're out of jobs. Those guys are well. Well, I mean, Mickey Joseph could get retained by whomever the next coach is going to be. Jake Peets certainly will not. But um, those two guys, yeah, there's, there's, they're, they're going. They're names that are that are going to be mentioned. And and yes, as you said, there's a quarterback already in the portal from that school named Miles Brennan, who was a highly rated kid. And and uh, you know, you can let your imagination start to wander from there. But um, lots of names will be floated out, and and I don't expect that that these hires are going to be finalized until uh, early December at the, at the, at the earliest. Okay. So, so what's, what do you think is going to happen the next couple of weeks that, that this kind of dies down except for speculation, like on podcasts like this one and talk radio and, and uh, Scott Frost kind of does his thing looking for a new assistance and um, play two games and then boom, you, you might get some guys right after maybe the championship weekend. Is that probably fair? Or do you think it might be longer than that? Yeah, it could be that quick. I mean, if you're going to get guys from a place like LSU where they're they already uh, you know have one foot out the door and can be looking for jobs, then then for sure. Um, if you're talking about getting coaches from schools that are in bowl contention right now, and you know they're they're not on lame duck lame duck staffs, um, you know which would be the majority of coaches in America, um, then it could be a bit longer before you're able to secure them. I mean, the, the, the priority is the coordinator. And that's the one that, that, that Frost wants to get in the, in the bag first. And then that coordinator can help hire the other offensive assistants. And by the way, they need to hire a special teams coordinator. So there's a, there's a way to structure the offensive assistants so that of these four openings, you hire three to do offensive jobs and you hire one to uh, be a special teams coordinator. Nebraska is the worst special teams organization in the Big Ten and one of the worst special teams uh, groupings in all of college football. And, and I found it just a little bit mind-bending that Scott Frost on Wednesday mentioned the improvement that the special teams has made and how Mike Dawson, the special teams coordinator, who was also the outside linebackers coach, has done a great job this year with the special teams. That, they're, they're terrible Nebraska's special teams, 126th in the country in kickoff returns, 117th in punt returns. They're 79th in the country in, no, that's coverage. Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's, that's returns. They're 79th in punt coverage, 50th in kickoff coverage. They've had four, they've missed four extra points. They've missed eight of 16 field goals. They couldn't field punts at the beginning of the year. They've had an extra point returned for two points that was blocked against Oklahoma. This is not okay. This isn't this, 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 there needs to be major change in the way that Nebraska addresses special teams. Iowa has a special teams coordinator. Wisconsin has a special teams coordinator. So make it work. If, if you're committed to, to fixing this and fixing what ails your program in 2022, one of the things you need to do if you're Scott Frost is hire a special teams coordinator. So the offensive coordinator, he's got say on two offensive assistant jobs. If they take that 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 route, and you want to get him in place first before you before you hire the other two. Well, 
I know Nebraska doesn't like to look east for ideas or whatever, but yes, LeVar Woods is a fantastic one. I don't, he's not going west. I can guarantee that. But, uh, but if you look at Iowa's special teams last year, they were ranked number one across the board by, you know, I think a sports source on, on so many different metrics. They have one of the best punters in the country. They have a, a field goal kicker who's only missed two. They have great coverage units, all those types of things. It matters. And when, and in this division, which is a developmental division, line of scrimmage division, hidden yardage matters. And that's, you know, instead of a 35-yard punt, you get a 51. That's a that's a first down and a half. You're forcing that offense to go. And if you've got a good defense, that's a little bit longer against a really good unit, a few more plays for you to, to, to work it. And so I I would not – I would say that is a necessity – if you ignore it, if you just try to divide the, the chores up the way it used to be, now you've got a 10th assistant coach. Go get your special teams guy. You need that. Yeah, uh, it's it's um, it seems fairly obvious. And I thought Nebraska should have hired a special teams coordinator two years ago when Javon DeWitt, who was heading up that area, also was outside linebackers coach, left to go to North Carolina. Um, Frost decided to go with an analyst and Jonathan Rutledge as as his special teams coordinator. And and Rutledge couldn't work on the field with the players. Well, well, maybe he did, and that's why Nebraska's under NCAA investigation now. But um, he lasted one year, and now we're in the situation with Dawson as the special teams coordinator. And I think it takes away from the outside linebackers because he has to try to divide his time between uh, that with the defense and, and also um, committing to special teams. And it doesn't give special teams the amount of attention that it needs. So the opportunity is here now for Nebraska to do it. And you can structure it so your offensive coordinator coaches the quarterbacks. You have a receivers coach um, You have a, a, who also works with the tight ends, and that can be Sean Becton. Um, and then you have a running backs coach, a quarterbacks coach, and a, and a special teams coordinator. So um, the opportunity is there to do it. I think there would be solid candidates. I don't buy into the conversation that um, because Frost is on thin ice, that it's going to be hard to hire good coaches. You know, these guys can get paid upwards of half a million dollars a year. Um, in the case of your offensive coordinator, it's going to be probably be more than that. Eric Chenander, the the DC, he makes eight hundred thousand dollars a year, so they're going to get paid well. Um, they're potentially going to get two year contracts. Um, you're going to get experience in the Big Ten, as you said, Scott. You've got an opportunity to be. The, the, the group of coaches who, who helps Scott Frost dig out of this hole. Um, you know, we remember a similar coach at Nebraska. There have been many of these situations. There's always a situation. It seems at Nebraska during these hot seat moments and these, these, these coaching shift moments, there's always a precedent in the last 20 years because there have been so many coaching changes. And this one, it, it harkens back to, to 2002 when, um, and I sound like Kirk Ferentz here going, going, calling up 2002. I'm going to call up 1981 here in a minute, but, um, <laughs> but um, Frank Solich went seven yeah. and seven um, a year after playing for the national championship and he fired six assistant coaches and they brought in a bunch of new guys, some with Nebraska connections, some not. And the, the big fish among that group was a coordinator named Bo Pelini, who, right. who had one year. One year in 03. And look what he made out of that year. He ended up ended up getting him the job ultimately as head coach at Nebraska for seven years. Um, he's made a boatload of money because of that 2003 stint 
um, as the Nebraska DC for one year. Not to say that he wouldn't have had another route and done it anyway. I think he, you know he's such a talented defensive mind, uh, especially back in that time, that uh, he was going to find his way into some big jobs. But that's really where it started for Bo was 2003 at Nebraska, which was a lame duck year. You know he made it one year. They won nine games, and and that was the end. Here's what my last question about the Nebraska staff. If you're Eric Chenander, um, who uh, you know has ties over here in this, this side of the world, if if you're looking at it going, hey, you know all these guys I came in with too, they're all gone. We're on a one year thing. What happens if I'm just speculating? Let's just let's LSU. Have, you know, let's say uh, Bill O'Brien gets a pretty decent job. Uh, mm. I don't know, Washington. Let's let's call it Washington. Jimmy Jimmy gets fired. Jimmy Lake. Then he goes out to Washington. He, he takes Brian Ferentz with him as uh, as OC and running game coordinator. He's really good friends with Eric Chenander, former teammates at Iowa. Yeah. Um, would Eric Chenander just say, you know what? There's too much uncertainty here. I I'm tired of this. I want a new break and and go start somewhere new. Or do you think that he is so loyal to, to Scott that he'll stay no matter what? Well. Eric Shenander and Scott Frost are pretty close, personally pretty close. And you can say that Scott Frost was pretty close with a guy like Ryan Held, a guy like Mario Verduzco, um, but I, Greg Austin, all of them, Matt Lubick. But Shenander and Frost are they're 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 very tight. Um, and Shenander's, as I said, making eight hundred thousand. So if he can find something that is more secure than what looks like possibly a one-year deal at Nebraska for 800,000. Um, and it's similar money then I'd say anything is on the table. Yes, he would, he would look. Um, but he's definitely going to be taking into account and it will be a big factor, his loyalty and, and his friendship with Scott Frost. But as we saw Monday, there are things that supersede friendship and if he's got a better opportunity at a place, a place like that that you mentioned, or maybe an opportunity to go to the SEC, um, he's a name. Eric Shenander's a name and a hot name. And he's got all these seniors on his defense this year. They stand to take a step back next year just because of the losses in personnel that they're going to suffer after this season. Um, I think he would think about it. More realistic, I think a guy like Travis Fisher, who's an outstanding secondary coach at Nebraska, will continue to look for positions to get himself back into the southeastern part of the country. Um, he's, he's, he's pursued some of those things in the past and obviously hasn't gotten the jobs. But um, he's a, I, I think he's a future coordinator um, in, in, uh, in college football. Uh, and and I, I believe that, that if an opportunity comes up for, for Fisher, uh, Nebraska may lose a defensive assistant. I don't expect that it's going to lose Janander, but I wouldn't totally say it's out of the, out of the question. Okay, that's interesting because uh, when you look at this time of year, you've got there's loyalties and then there's priorities. And you know, you look at where the the area that I cover, <laughs> there hasn't been there's never much movement. Now, eventually, there's going to be. Who knows? This could be Kirk's last year for all I know, and then it's an open season on everybody. But hey, there's Chenander. There's a spot for Chenander. Yeah, there's a spot for Chenander. Well, if Phil Parker leaves, but I think everybody would vote for Phil Parker, <laughs> who. Um, you know, Kirk said, look, I worked with a really, really good secondary coach in Cleveland and Phil's better. And, and that's Nick Saban, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and Phil wow. played for Bold statement. It is, but 
I think he's probably right when it comes to coaching secondary, because mm-hmm. uh, you look at what what Nick has, what what Phil gets. Um, Phil actually played for him. He GA'd for him. So he know. I mean, for Nick. And uh, but as far as secondary coaches, there's nobody better. And as far as defensive coordinators, he's certainly proven that he's in that upper echelon as well. But, you know, so I don't know if Eric could come over for that. That said, I'm sure they would take him for a position coach in a heartbeat and maybe an, another assistant defensive coordinator because Seth Wallace is, also serves in that role. Yeah, I wasn't suggesting that Phil was going to get was going to get sent packing. I meant if things <laughs> if things if things completely blew up in Iowa, if Kirk decided to hang it up, then maybe there would be a landing spot there for a guy like Eric Janander. But uh, no, Phil Parker's not going anywhere. Yeah, I, I can see realistically because I know Eric and Brian are I can see them linking up at some point in the future. But, I mean, but who knows? It's a crazy environment. Even after the clapping episode last year, my goodness. Uh, didn't that happen this year? It could happen again. Maybe it'll happen at Memorial Stadium on Black Friday. You, the stadium could be empty enough at some point that day that uh, that uh, Iowa could uh, could clap on its sidelines and mess up the Nebraska cadence. You know, uh, one thing about Kirk is uh, he's out of blanks to give lately. You know, last year with Floyd <laughs> and uh, when he just when he said at the end of the game, he's like, I figured we'd leave the timeouts here and take Floyd with us. And, uh, you know, the clapping is, is, issue. And then, of course, uh, James Franklin this year. So uh, he's he's going out on a roll, with, whether it's this year, next year, five years, 10 years down the road and goes to the Bill Snyder uh, philosophy of coaching until he's 76, which I guarantee will not happen. They ought to. They ought to just like completely troll the Nebraska sideline and have like a, an, an artificial noisemaker on the Iowa side that's making clapping noises during the game, and, and uh, so Nebraska can't figure out where it's coming from, like coming from a speaker underneath the <laughs> underneath a table or something like that. So <laughs> I don't know, but uh, that's um, you know we haven't talked enough about the clapping this year. I, w- I wish I wish that that subject could have been could have been revisited more, and maybe, maybe we can bring it up in a podcast the week of the uh, the week of Black Friday. Yeah, exactly. Every everybody should just carry lamps to the field, and everybody clap on, <laughs> clap off. <laughs> uh, we're, we're reaching our silly stage here. So, uh, but anyway, uh, thanks so much for for taking part today, Mitch. I know two weeks in a row, uh, but the, you know, even though it's the only team out of the postseason, there's there's more interesting things going on in Nebraska than everywhere else. So, hey, as long as there's something for me to write about, I'm I'm. Uh, I'm happy to uh, happy to come join you on the pod and and uh, and keep plugging away. So it's 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 always interesting, and um, I guess that's about the best thing you can say these days. Absolutely, be be relevant, be interesting, just don't be boring. There's nothing worse than being boring in this industry. So I believe that's well, a Paul Christ. <laughs> you know, the first time I heard him on. I, I keep going into these things. The first time I ever heard him on a teleconference, he was just as bad as I've ever heard. And, and finally I, I type it. I'm like, it sounds like he's playing solitaire in the background <laughs> and trying to answer these questions. And, and I actually had a couple of likes from um, officials around the league that were listening to the same thing. <laughs> so bad. But, well, thanks again for your appearance. And we thank you, our legend, legends and listeners, for subscribing. So please rate and review us. And don't be afraid to give us five stars like Ari Wasserman's favorite prospects. So for Mitch Sherman, this is Scott Dockerman, and we will talk to you again next week. Music.